0: episode of fno insure tech your leader i don't know that we're the leader but the I,
2: leader we can say that we can we're say whatever we want to say <laughs> we,
0: that's right this is a podcast you can say whatever you want to say yeah truth truth is not necessarily a premium
2: yeah i mean we uh, think it is we think that we're the leader yeah
0: and that's all that matters
2: we tried to be the leader we tried to put things out there we try uh, to bring you the newest news but of course today yeah. we're bringing you an older episode
0: We're bringing we're bringing you an older episode because one of the benefits of having been, been around for almost five years is that we we have a lot of inventory we have a lot of podcasts and many of them are really terrific with amazing people and right we're gonna put one of those out today today we're we're reissuing our Episode that we did with Bruce Lucas, co-founder and CEO of Slide Insurance out of Florida. Bruce is an amazing, amazing insurance person with a remarkable track record, founded and grew Heritage, and now has founded and is growing Slide. And we're thinking of them this week because they've just added a line of credit.
2: A big uh, amount. Big uh, amount.
0: for, For a big, big dollar amount. Um, has hit the press. And we picked that up. And so we thought this is a great time to kind of circle back on slide and reintroduce the episode.
2: I think it's great. I like it whenever we do these because because I think we're getting more followers of the podcast, right? And so now we can send them back and say, this is one you need to listen to. So I'm excited. I'm excited that we're having it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It would be hard to listen to everything that we've done. So we'll help you to do that. Uh, Bruce is a great guy, and he has many terrific people on his staff, including John DeVoe, who I'll send a shout out to, um, who's the chief claims officer and an old friend. And so we're happy to put this one back out. Let's do it. And so without further ado, here is our originally broadcast episode with Bruce Lucas, CEO and co founder at Slide Insurance. Hey, everybody, we're here with our guest. It is a privilege for us to have a, uh, a guy who just can't get away from insurance, no matter how hard he tries. And he's done a pretty good job of trying to do that. We have Bruce Lucas, the founder and CEO of Slide, his latest incarnation in the insurance business with us today from Tampa, Florida, Tampa, Home of hey. insurance. What's the weather like in Tampa today?
1: It is beautiful, sunny, and I bet you ungodly hot outside.
0: <laughs> That's exactly so what that I would expect. Pretty much like every day in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> For the most
1: part, especially this uh-huh. time.
0: I was in Tampa about a month ago, and uh, I stayed in this hotel that was like, I don't know, 20 stories or something. And I was up high, and I watched this a massive thunderstorm roll yeah. through. Does that happen
1: every day? Every day, every Mm -hmm. afternoon, between four and seven, it's a thunder shower here.
0: Okay. Something has to bring you claims, right? (laughs) We'd get bored without it. (laughs) So let's jump in and we want to talk about you. We want to talk about where you've been and what you've done, but but let's start with slide. Um, Since uh, you're talking to us from the beautiful and palatial slide offices Mm -hmm. in Tampa, Florida. Start by telling us what Slide is and, and what you do and, and how, how Slide is a little bit different.
1: Yeah, Slide's a tech company that focuses on homeowners insurance. And, you know, it's a space that I know pretty well, given my background at Heritage. And, you know, when I started thinking about Slide and, you know, what really kind of hit me, like, what's the next quantum leap in insurance? What's the next thing? Uh, What can we do differently? You know, it's, as, as you guys know, it's a pretty stoic business. It really has not evolved or changed very much at all in the last 40, 50 years. It it looks and feels the same way. And, you know, I, I personally believe that the way insure tax and old, you know, more stoic insurance companies underwrite risk is backwards. They, and what I mean by that is they're, they're underwriting in reverse, they're binding a policy today based on loss experience from two years ago, from reinsurance costs from a year ago. And they're kind of in this negative vortex of underwriting at a loss because they can never get enough premium to capture the risk that's here today and for the next 12 months. And so as I thought about slide, I thought, I, I, I want to turn that on set. I want to be the first prospective underwriting company in the insurance industry. And I want to do that leveraging big data because data doesn't lie, numbers don't lie, and automate the underwriting process using some state-of-the-art AI approaches um, based on that data set. And that's how SLIDE was born. So yes, we we do homeowners insurance. That's our bread and butter. We've got around $400 of enforced premium and things are going well on that front. But the tech development to kind of change the underwriting strategy is what I'm most proud of. And uh, I think it is, I think it is a quantum leap in the industry and time will tell, but we're feeling pretty good about what we're building here.
2: And so tell me a little more about that underwriting strategy. You're saying you're looking at a, at a proactive look, right? Whenever you're, you're underwriting these risks. I guess when somebody comes to you and says, insure my home, what data points are you looking at?
1: We look at the data points around the insured and the structure. And okay. then we, we do things that, you know, a traditional insurance company would do as well. We pull claims histories. We, you know, we, we look at, you know, did you have coverage in place before? And, sure, you have you know, to do that. Underwriting steps, right? We'll, we'll look at um, insurance scores, which have a component of credit built into them. But primarily, we're, we're looking at how that particular insured, when you look at the data of who they are and the data of what the house is, how does it compare to underwriting history of other policyholders who look like that person and that risk? So we have an absolute, I mean, (laughs) it's not even a, a, you can't even say it's a lead. It's an insurmountable amount of data compared to the rest of the industry, we have a $5 trillion TIV underwriting data set and 20 years of historical claims information. And so that gives us the opportunity to look at someone today and find people who are like them, have risks like them over time. How did those policies perform? Where were they priced? What kind of coverages did they have? What was the claims frequency? What kind of claim losses did they have? And it gives us a much fuller picture on who the person is what the risk is and what that risk is going forward and that's what we're underwriting to
0: you're very careful in your marketing to refer to slide as an insure tech
1: is yes. that what we're talking about here absolutely because we we lead with our technology and we lead with the tech being the underwriter and you know a company of slide size right now you know with 400 million of revenue, you should have 40 to 50 underwriters, right? We have, we have six. Oh, wow. You know, we're automating so much of the insurance process. It's, it's the things that, you know, generalists or the consumer just have no understanding of, frankly, most of the agents don't even understand it. But I mean, we're automating exposure management. We're automating how we progress throughout the year under our reinsurance treaties. We're automating model refreshing and, you know, we use AIR as our base model and we compare our AI against AIR and, you know, we we process, automate and update our AI daily and we let that AI kind of run side by side with AIR to to kind of prove out the modeled results, make sure that we're we're still accurate. But it's it's all about the tech. I think the tech is what is going to transform the industry. And so we're we're absolutely proud to say that we're one of the leading insurre techs in the country. So
0: I, I have to ask since you brought it up, how's AIR doing?
1: They're doing good <laughs> in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. In comparison. Yeah. Uh, well, so we're running right now right around ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent credibility with AIR relative to them, right? Yes, relative to them. That's that's, so that's in, fabulous. In 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 some of our states we're 99.9% accurate with the AIR model. So it doesn't work when you're 70% accurate. You've got to be, you know, mid to high 90s in terms of your accuracy, but what a tremendous lens that is into the risk to understand at point of sale what the risk is, what what the real cost of that risk is on a prospective basis for the next 12 months. And then you can do things to, you know, automate that process, decline risk, bind risk, consent to rate, whatever it is, but you want to make sure that you're underwriting out a profit. And I think that's what's missing in the insure tech industry. Well, yes, clearly. clearly. Yeah, the lack of profit. I think slide is the first and only (laughs) full stack insure tech to ever even turn a quarterly profit. Congratulations. We've done it two quarters in a row, and I'm pretty confident we'll be profitable this year. Um, But it just goes to show, I mean, you really need to have real insurance discipline behind the scenes. Um, And you have to develop technology that enhances that insurance discipline and makes the model more efficient and more profitable. And, you know, when you do better, you can reduce rates and then the consumer wins and, You'll pick up more market share, but you're picking up market share. Our goal is to pick up market share on scale, but have it be you know profitable-based business. It always surprised me, and it, it, at some point it probably shouldn't have. Whenever I would run reinsurance models over my portfolio at Heritage, inevitably what I'd find is that, hey, over the last month or two months, I've let in a whole bunch of risk here that is just losers, right? They, they will never generate a profit because the reinsurance costs are just too high. And that's your single largest expense as a coastal insurer. And you know, what you're really doing is you're getting a basket of winners and losers, and you're hoping in the aggregate that you have more winners than losers. And then you eke out a small underwriting profit. And for me, I'd rather take some of the risk out of the model, particularly in places like Florida, and I'd rather focus on more profitable business that is accretive to the P&L. I've always been a profit-based CEO. I made a profit every single year at the helm of Heritage, and that was, what, 9, 10 years in a row. i um, pretty sure I'm the only guy in the sector to do that. And, you know, that's our focus here. It has to begin and end with being a profitable company. And I think that's what's missing in the tech world. You know, lack of domain knowledge, lack of understanding of the insurance model, and therefore tech that doesn't do anything to expand it and, and turn a profit.
0: You started the company, you started writing, I guess, with the former St. John's book. That's right. That you, that you acquired. And that was a book that St. John, I mean, obviously, it drove them out of the business. What magic do you guys have to take a, to take that same book
1: and fulfill what your goal is? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, when you look, when I looked at St. John's, and just by way of background, I mean I've done more coastal M and A than any CEO in the sector in the last ten years. Right? I'm extremely active on the M and A side. Every M and A transaction I've ever done has been profitable. I know what a good book looks like. And as I looked through St. John's, what really jumped out to me, because I had the same starting place where your question came from, is this viable? I don't want to end up like St. John's. Nobody wants a tombstone on their name. But as I looked through it, it became pretty clear to us that they had done an excellent job of cleaning up their portfolio. What killed St. John's was the 2019 and 2020 accident years and those were old shingle roofs and everybody in Florida knows about the ongoing roof fraud kind of catastrophe that's going on here with the lawyers and contractors and public adjusters and you know their number one target is people with older shingle roofs because you know people want them for free right they they yeah. know they know they need them imagine that better. yeah and so they look to the insurance policy as a, as a maintenance policy which it's not and so they got rid of most of those older risks. I mean, they I mean, dropped tens and tens of thousands of policies. They increased the rates quite a bit. And, you know, the, the metrics, the data-driven metrics on the portfolio, they scored really high on our models when we looked just purely at the data. We then took their policies, um, their underwriting history, et cetera, the underwriting changes that they had made, changes to policies and premium. And we ran it through our immense data set to find how did other companies price the risk? How, did, how was their p and on a similar portfolio? And it, it, it really checked in quite nicely that, hey, this is a winning book of business. Uh, I like that I, when we ran the reinsurance models over it. A really good metric that I use is not to be too nerdy, but is PML to premium ratios. And I've never, I've never seen a company below two, ever, in my career. Uh, a low two is a is an absolute gem to find. This was 1.5. Wow. And And it was like, wow, I've never seen that. Now, hey, you know, reinsurance rates up at at six one. So you give some of that back. But um, at the end of the day, it means that at least on a model basis, it's a good distribution of risk, newer risks, newer roofs, all those things bear out in the data Um, turned out to be an excellent book of business. And, you know, to our credit, we've already turned thirty three million dollar profit through the end of May. Congratulations! So we're doing something right. Our models work, um, and you know we didn't have quota shares and other things that that those guys had that really were quite punitive to the P and L. But um, portfolio is continues to massively outperform even our models, so we're extremely happy with that book, and um, it's a good foundation to have. And it's nice to have profit in a startup year, and yeah. uh, we're off to the races.
2: So how many folks are actually staying with you when slide buys that book of business? Was there an expectation for people to leave and find other insurance companies? How many are, how many are staying with you?
1: Yeah, we run kind of normal attrition levels where we usually retain between 80 and 85% of the book at renewal and in Florida, and that includes midterm cancels and in Florida that's pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the the, run.
0: Is the book all Florida?
1: Uh, We have some risk in South Carolina, but mainly Florida. Mm -hmm.
2: I wanted to go back to the underwriting side. I was just thinking, is it fair to say that maybe you're replacing some underwriters with data scientists? And so you have a room full of underwriters, right? But instead of having 50 seats, you might have 25 underwriters and 25 data scientists, just to give an example. No, um,
1: it's not a one for one swap. And okay. you know, like, I value underwriters. I value underwriting in the insurance process. Underwriters are the heart and soul of the company. It's underwriting claims. That's you live and die by those things. I'd say risk management, reinsurance, would be another one, but yeah, you know, I kind of look at it and just say, you know, I, I'd walk through the halls at, at heritage, for example, and this is not meant to be a condemnation on underwriters there, but you'd look around and you'd say, my God, what do these 100 people do? Right. <laughs> what what can we automate here? What can we modernize? What what processes and procedures can we put in place where you have a machine doing it with greater accuracy and greater speed, but it's it's a fixed price of actually creating, you know, that software program or that AI program. And you know, you save so much on the SGNA side, you know, a a big Part of what I'm trying to do here is reduce insurance prices, not raise them. I want to reduce them. I think hardworking families deserve a break. I think insurance agents need a market that is sellable. And, you know, the only way to do that is to do a better job on the front end, underwriting, obviously handle claims efficiently, but you've also got to reduce your SG&A expenses, because that's, that's the third leg of the P&L stool in, in insurance. And so we're focused on kind of all three components. And, and how do we bring these costs down across the board? Because anybody in this business who's been around will tell you, you win on price always, yes. right? And right. so we want to be the lower priced option and pass some of these savings on to the consumer. But yet yeah, we, we need to maintain our, our margins of profit as well.
0: You you mentioned walking through the hallways of Heritage. When you were at Heritage, obviously, you just said it, that there were times where you said you wished it could be different, right? So sure. were you kind of hatching this vision? I mean, this is a vision that didn't start. You left, you, you finished your work at Heritage, you left the company. I guess you did some consulting in the midterm. It didn't hatch then. This is something that's been kind of percolating for years, yes?
1: Yes. And I actually had all the ideas to do these things probably three to four years ago. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be amazing if, if we, if, if we knew something simple, like what's the reinsurance cost of point of sale, wouldn't that be amazing to know so that we can make smarter decisions on what we're doing and how we're pricing it. That is incredibly difficult to do. Mm-hmm. That is not easy. And uh, these models are not built to be forward-looking models. They're retrospective-based models. And in order to do what we've done, I mean, it's it's been a lot of trial and error. It's It's been a lot of data combinations. Uh, to give you an example of how much data is required to create one state's model, in Florida, we have 6 billion data points that we use to create our Florida model. 6 Goodness. billion. And so if you're one of the, you know, newer insure tax that have been underwriting for four or five years and, and none of these companies have really hit scale, right? I mean, I had over a billion premium at heritage for Pete's sake years ago. Um, Nobody's even remotely close to that, that level yet. So your, your own loss experience and underwriting experience is incredibly limited and it's limited to only what you've been doing at your company on your product, you don't have kind of um, a view of 360 degrees. What are other companies doing? What, how are their policies different? How did it price? How did it perform? They don't have any of that. What's the data on the winners, for it, example? Yeah, and the losers, and mm-hmm. the losers, and the ones in between. You want to know everything. And you need this amount of data, massive amounts of data, in order to even think about building these models. And that's why the barrier to entry is is so high to what we're doing and the way we're using technology and the insurance process. It's just so different. It's brand new and it's a fresh way of thinking about underwriting. But uh, I'm sure others are, are going to see how successful it is and I, I'm sure they'll look to emulate it. But without the data, it's a dead end and you never hear anyone talk about that.
2: You said that a second item in the insurance ecosystem is, is the claim side uh, yeah. to be super important. How is this data and this fresh approach impacting the way you handle claims?
1: It's very clear when you run through the data, the number one thing you want to do, and you guys know this, is shorten the cycle time. Right, I mean, right. That is. That is oh, we, we've never heard that, Bruce. Yeah, Bruce. I can only imagine. Never that, right? <laughs> in the last five minutes. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do is to make, and then, you know, the other thing that is not in the data, but I know it because I can feel it. I've just been in this business a long time and, and I know it and it is communication problems. Oh yeah. Whenever you have an insured that cannot get an answer on something or reach somebody, the frustration factor goes through the roof and then they're much more likely to call an attorney or a public adjuster. And things can get you know, off the rails rather, rather quickly. And so two things that we've been focused on is any way that we can to shorten that cycle time, how mm-hmm. we gather information, how we process information. Um, you know, we have baselines that we look at on certain types of claims to say, hey, is this thing in the realm of reason? If it is, it passes the smell test. We should just cut a check, move on, take care of the insured, shorten that cycle time and have... Robust communication throughout the entire process. We like to reach out, give them the direct info, of the examiner that's handling their file, give them different ways to communicate. Um, We're excited about launching our app, which will will probably happen more like fourth quarter, first quarter. But it has uh, two way communication in it. You can submit claims. You can do recorded statements. You can do virtual inspections. You can upload videos and photos. And it goes right into the right into the claim file. And that way it, it's not a process where you're emailing something to somebody, they're downloading it, and then they're uploading it to the system to put it in the right file. No, it just goes into the file. Everyone gets a notice that this new information is there. When we receive things, the examiner can communicate back to the insured and say, we've received your estimate. We received your photos. Those are the things that I think you you, you look to do in claims. And and I, one final thing is there are just certain types of claims, small claim. They're better just to process automate them. You know, you get a lightning strike claim for five hundred bucks or something. It's like, you know what, you're 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 going to pay that claim ninety nine percent of the time. You might as well run it through and just ACH them. Claims open and closed in a day, right? Yeah. That keeps people happy. So right. Some of it is database. Some of it is just industry knowledge and experience, which you can't teach in a data set. And but we're along the way, we're trying to make this a more modern experience for everyone.
2: And I guess being heavy in, in Florida, you're always preparing a cat scenario for claims. Yeah, I guess. Talk to us a little bit about that. What do you go through in preparation for knowing that a huge book of business could get hit with just one swath of a storm?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, you need to have a panel of adjusters, right? You got to make sure you have enough of those people. Oh, uh, what a
2: coincidence!
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I know it's something that's right up your alley. It kind of starts there. It starts with a pretty robust cap management plan. But for me, I, I you know, I, I just think a little differently than most of the industry, and you know, I, I believe in having. Uh, the ability to triage claims after a cat. You have to oh, have yeah. that. Very few people actually do that. Right. Um, I remember in when Hurricane Irma came through on Heritage, I mean, I think we did ten or 15,000 claims. And, you know, it's roof yep. tarps, new roofs, dryouts, tree removal, board-ups, pack-outs. I mean, everything that you can think of on the on the catastrophe side of it, that type of damage, you need to have a turnkey solution for people. And by, by having those things kind of vertically integrated within the company, you're taking care of your insured and you're keeping third parties out of your book. And that's the important part because, you know, we had a much lower AOB percentage than most of the other carriers. I think we ran a 12% loss adjustment expense ratio on Irma. Wow. I don't think there's another company in Florida, even below 20. Most of them are in the thirties and continue to trend higher. And it worked and the insurance loved us and we kept the door knockers out of the book for the most part. And, you know, not always, but a lot of it. And, you know, you, you have to think proactively like that when you're trying to manage a catastrophe in a modern way. And one of the things that we rely on is visual imagery and AI around that imagery, right? We have a roof catalog of all of our risks, We know exactly what they looked like before the event. Uh, The company that we use for visual imagery, uh, they fly the event within 48 hours. So you get updated roof imagery set. You put some AI on it. Look at the the delta and damage before and after. You know, in a lot of these instances where you can clearly see the insured has suffered a loss, I want to reach out to them and open the claim on their behalf. I want to take care of them and their time of need. I mean that claim's right. coming one way or another. you right. might as well bump in front of them Get and do on the same
2: it thing. and with it And the uh, quicker you do it, right the quicker you're out there, it's just better for everybody
1: It, it, it is
2: and when you
1: have longer cycle times it, it does all kinds of screwy things with your IBNR Oh and yeah a lot of people don't truly appreciate that, but when the actuaries see a slowdown in, in claim resolution and you know pendings are staying open longer, they make you throw up additional IBNR. And, um, you know, so it can be extremely punitive to the P&L. And I just think there's a lot of people out there that just they're, they're operating insurance companies, but they don't really understand the in the weeds details of what their actions do and what that ripple effect looks like. We're thinking about those things all the time, trying to get ahead of them and and, and developing systems, processes, procedures that uh, produce the best results.
0: You know, it's refreshing and a pleasure to talk to, um, a serious insurance professional who understands it upside down and backwards and is applying it in the insurtech world. Um, and that's no knock on anybody there, there are, there are others, um, too, but I mean, one of the evolutions that Lee and I have been able to see through the years is when, when it was all kind of getting rolling, it was a lot of people from outside of insurance who maybe didn't have the level of know-how. And even like you said, the touch, right? Like you talk a lot about that, that you have a feeling, you have a sense right. exactly it, that you just get, you have to be, you have to do it to get it. Yes. And so it's really kind of cool to talk to somebody who's as tech forward as, as you're presenting but you're like an insurance, you're a regular insurance nerd, right?
1: I am an insurance nerd and everything we do here is just meant to kind of maximize that insurance process. How do you optimize it the most efficient way possible? And how do you, how do you manage a diverse portfolio of business with hundreds of thousands of risks in it that are changing every day? And you know, the challenges that come along with that are, are immense and, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that where InsureTech 1.0 were very successful, I, I think it was in in creating an easier to use uh, UX. Mm-hmm. I'll give them mm-hmm. full credit for that. That was mm-hmm. well ahead of its time, mm-hmm. but there has to be more than an easy binding experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. I agree. And, would, and I just want to touch on that before we jump to the next topic, and that is... DTC versus agents. Yeah. I mean, you're starting fresh. You could have gone any way you wanted to. You chose the
1: agent path. Talk about that. I think DTC, and uh, in, in, it's funny, I just had a, a debate with a VC about this this morning. Uh, I think DTC, if if you're doing it at an acceptable customer acquisition cost or CAC, Uh, I can see the advantages there for the company just in terms of retaining the agent commission year over year. Right. I get that. I think that the long term value metrics that I see these guys use where, oh, we're we're binding a house today and we're going to have that customer for 13 years. Nonsense. That is never going to happen. That is not the average lifespan of of a bound policy. It's like half that. And so I can see the, but I do see the, the benefit of you can do it on low CAC problem. I see nobody's been able to do it on a low CAC. Right. And the other problem that I see is that you're taking what should be a fixed expense, making it a variable expense. You don't know what that variable expense is month to month yet. You're pricing around it. How right. You're, you're inevitably going to lose on that. I like right. the certainty of a fixed CAC expense that I know is there and I can build a, a product and pricing around. I think agents do a lot of work that people don't give them credit for. They do all the totally. on the book. Um, now that said, we do have an internal DTC component, but we run it like an independent agency. It has, you know, if you're binding a policy from slide, whether through our DTC or through the IA, it's the same price. It's the same availability. There's no special rules for us. It, we're treated like any other agency. And that's because I do have some, you know, outside the box ideas around how to get CAC lower on the direct side. And I'd be remiss if I didn't give it a shot, you know, and, try, and try it. it. But, but I can tell you that my allegiance and my loyalty is really to the independent agents. Mm-hmm. i built. Tremendous businesses around independent agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the lifeblood of the policy. And I think the other thing that you need to remember, too, when you're only doing DTC, you are never going to do bookroll transactions. You're never going to do block trade transactions where you can get big scale and underwrite in mass in advance. And those things are the lifeblood of insurance companies. I mean, we live for those because you can come across entire portfolios that are attractive, underwrite them and scale. And, and, you know, those are very accretive transactions, both top and bottom line. Now, how do you do that? If you're DTC, you have no agents. Great question. Yeah. you right. never, you've you literally paint yourself into a corner and there's no way to get out of that corner. And the only risk that you're getting are risks that you found on your own. And in essence, there is a little bit of adverse selection that takes place there. Uh What you want is a broad platform of risk coming in from different sources. And, you know, you want to make smart decisions around that risk. And I don't think that DTC in this business is viable. I, I long term, it is not. And if you look at the underwriting results of these DTC writers, they're horrific. They're absolutely terrible. They're way worse than traditional PNC. Why? Right? It doesn't work. And just, that's just my opinion. But, you know, you could find some carriers that come along and they crack the code and they do it well. And I do think there's a possibility of that. But I would hate to have DTC as my only source of production. So you'll go as far as saying, as it stands today, I will always use independent agents. Yeah. That will never change.
0: I mean, why not have. To- And this is the thing that, like you said, I think it's an underappreciated cohort. I mean, I, and I'm completely guilty of it myself. The longer I'm in this business, the more I appreciate agents. And why not have somebody else out there who has a vested interest in that policy
1: renewing? I totally agree. Right. Uh, And they're going to help you. Yes. And they want to keep loss ratios low. That's because right. they, want to, they want to come back and say, hey, Bruce, I have a 15 percent, you know, fully developed loss ratio on my book. How about an override commission? Mm-hmm. They, they all want that upside. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they work hard for, mm-hmm. for what they produce and they've that a lot of things. And, you know, just me and my track record, you know, in the coastal insurance market, I know all these agents. And I can tell you that, you know, the, the agents that we have in our plant are you know, right at the top of the list, the best of the best, they don't give you fudge data. They don't give you nonsense information on the underwriting side. They're giving you accurate information. And they do that because they're one, they want to take care of their customer. They want to be a good partner to the carrier and they don't want an E&O exposure, right? Mm -hmm. And (laughs) so you, you know, from the starting place, you're getting more accurate data. If you're getting your data only from the insured and whether it's intentional or not intentional, maybe they don't have a full understanding of what all these inputs are. Totally. And so you could end up with a misalignment of data and risk. That is that is not good. That is a death cross.
0: Yeah. You know, it's going to hurt underwriting results. So let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about you. You're a strange cat. And, <laughs> uh, I think
1: that's a compliment. Thank
0: Thank I, 100%. Yeah, I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it.
2: <laughs>
0: no, uh, no, seriously, you're a very interesting man who's had a very interesting background. You're an attorney, right? Yes, I am.
1: Recovering? I Recovering. I I I started out in the early 2000s as an attorney. I was at a huge international firm, Wild Gottschall Mange's. And my claim to fame there is I did the Enron case. Enron was our client. And that's what I worked on full time for five or six years. And wow. I'd kind of bounce around between the Houston office and then go to New York for the litigation side of it and go to London for deals that we would cut because we were um, winding down the European estate over there with PricewaterhouseCoopers, Coopers. And so I kind of just did this rotation, you know, fairly mm-hmm. frequently. And it was a case of a lifetime. I just decided I didn't want to practice law anymore. I had a great partnership opportunity. And, um, you know, no offense to New York, just didn't want to raise my kid in New York. And yeah, so I went into, uh, something new and I started a, a distressed opportunity hedge fund focused on coastal energy in the great recession. And so yes. kind of timing was prescient. Timing and is everything. Timing's the whole 99% of your business plan's timing. And, you know, I, I just saw a unique opportunity. And if you remember back to those days, Bear Stearns had just gone down. I, heck, I think oil was like 160 a barrel back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was higher than it is now. And I'm like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, at, at the same time, the mortgage world is, you know, falling apart. Collapsing. Yeah. You know, total collapse. You're, you've got some of the biggest names on Wall Street going down. Mm-hmm. there's a recession coming. And when there's a recession, I'll short energy all day. I mean, that's a, that's an easy trade. And, uh, so I kind of set all that up ahead of time and virtually ran myself into bankruptcy personally. And <laughs> I think that was down to like $10,000 in the bank account. We, we struck our first big deal and, you know, rest is history. We killed it from there. Uh, but I did that for a number of years. I left and I partnered with some guys around town, and I was kind of like taking a little semi-retirement. You know, I was just tired. Yeah. Sure. One has been my son. I, you know, I'm I'm big into family, okay. and so we we tried the banking thing, but it was too boring for me. I I didn't really want to get involved there. You know, it was just not my thing. And it makes insurance look like high fashion space. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It's like the Paris, it's like Paris fashion show compared to that, uh-huh. uh, but I'm great with numbers. I'm kind of a, like a data savant. I mean, you can give me the numbers. I'll tell you what they say, what they mean. And the numbers that I saw as I started looking at Florida homeowners insurance 10 years ago, were absolutely compelling. And you know, I, I started tracking inflows of capital going into Bermuda on sidecar deals and collateralized re and I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, everybody, all these pension funds coming out of the Great Recession, they only had one truly non-correlated asset if they had it, and that was global reinsurance that went up every year. And so what happened? You come out of the Great Recession and they all start putting little tiny paper cuts worth of capital into global reinsurance. And that's an ocean at its start, right? So a very small amount there moves the pendulum quite uh, dramatically. And so I developed a thesis around short reinsurance price. And that was in 2011. Between 2012 and 2016, I think on average, uh, risk-adjusted rates went down 20% a year, right? That's... uh, That's a home run for profit, right? So I'm good with numbers. I saw the opportunity. I I jumped in. I literally put my entire net worth on the line, risked it all. And everyone said I'd fail and we killed it. I think we made 300 million our first three years. We were public in 20 months. Citigroup took us public. We more than doubled the IPO within 12 months. And you know, we, we absolutely hit a home run and I, I stayed on there, grew the company to over a billion in annual premium, profitable every single year, 16 state operation. And it started pretty humbly with a piece of paper and five guys in an old doctor's office.
0: Wow. That's awesome. What a
1: story. Fun stories, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah.
0: That that was a good time, I bet. huh?
1: Exciting. They're all good times. They're all uh-huh. good times. I'm equally uh-huh. excited about what we're doing at Slide these days. And I... I think it's, in a lot of ways, it's just the evolution of that process and mm-hmm. what what's the next level that you take it to. And unfortunately, I didn't feel like I could do it with a legacy platform at Heritage. And, um, you know, it's hard to change something when it's that big and, yeah. you know, kind of a behemoth. Um, I had to start from from scratch and, you know. That's what that's what I kind
0: of see and I feel here is is that you had other options, but Slide gave you a completely blank whiteboard. Yes, that you could walk up to, and uh, we had that several years ago when we founded our company years ago in 2011. There was all kinds of legacy issues that didn't apply to us at all because we started, we were starting at 2011 when things were yeah. really taking off, right? <laughs> right. And and um, so, but that's been the case here with you is is that you saw that as an opportunity. Let's let's clear everything off, not have to deal with any of the legacy stuff. Maybe except the, the CEO guy, the, yes. the legacy CEO guy. But uh, and and I got to say it here and the legacy claims guy, Mr. DeVoe. I, <laughs> I got to give him a shout out. Yeah, no, out.
1: There's a legacy people in this business. And, you know, it's like they, they bring a lot of ideas to the table because they've seen it all and they, mm-hmm. they know how to change it and transform it. And, you know, it's a, that's the growing trend right now that I see across the insure tech industry, all of them. They're starting to hire real insurance professionals. Absolutely. I saw I Hippo that too. six months ago, got there nine months ago, whatever it was. Not that long ago, got their first chief claims officer ever in the company yeah. system. Right. What?
2: Right. what? Real <laughs> insurance people. Yeah. Right.
1: And I think that they're waking up and, you know, they're smart people over there. These aren't dummies at these other insured techs. They are very bright, talented very people. Smart. But I, I think that what they're seeing now is... We need to fortify the insurance knowledge here because, you know, when you're building technology to, to maximize insurance and you don't really have that full appreciation of what the insurance process is at a microcosm level, you're you're literally building the bridge to nowhere. And, you know, they, they need to bring these two things together for us coming in. I had spent a year thinking about the business plan before I did anything. Yeah. It was a year on business plan, nonstop. Who are my people? How am I rolling out? You know, How am I going to do all these things to change insurance? Um, I had all that done plus data deals in place before I even did a capital raise. I just funded it out of pocket. Oh, and, wow. And that allows us to come in at inception with that blank piece of paper, something new, something innovative, and design it and build it the way I've always wanted to do an insurance carrier. You know, I think that's really the heart and soul of kind of our success is that mentality and the the different expertise that we bring from across the tech and insurance industries.
2: You know, I think three years ago, Rob and I have been doing this podcast for three three years or so. I think the thought was is that I've got to go out and hire somebody who's not insurance, and, because they're going to come in with a with a skewed mind of the old ways. But I think a lot of people are realizing that no. There's really smart insurance people who want to change. They just may be at a company who is not allowing that to happen. So they're willing mm-hmm. to go to an insuretech tech like Slide or, or any of them and, and change for the better. And I, I, think, I think a lot of people are seeing that. I,
1: I totally agree with that. I think one of the problems with insurance is that, you know, when you look at successive generations of insurance executives, it's round hole, round bag. Mm-hmm. That's the mentality. And it's true. It's really true. Like when I came into the industry, I mean, I, I scared a lot of people on, even on my own management team, <laughs> because they push the envelope on everything. Why? Right. Why can't you do this? Why are you doing it that way? Why have you thought about doing it this? Nobody does that. No, this is yeah, the way it's not how done.
2: it's done. I'm
1: disrupted. I'm like, no, we're going to push the envelope and we're going to bend it. And if it breaks along the way, it breaks and we'll fix it. But you have to push the paradigm and you know, to find like particularly on our team, what I really value, what I looked for, was yes, you have that old world deep resume experience, but you're coming at it from a place of man. I wish I could change all these things, and that's what I looked for in the management team. I wanted people that would be in an uh, you know their own kind of mini CEO of their department, guys like John, and you know I wanted them to come in and and challenge the status quo and. Buy into the vision and how can we change it and how can we do things differently? And, you know, along the way, what you find is that some things you, you just don't do differently because they you can't. Because they are the way they are and right. they work. But all this other stuff you can change. Right. And it, what a big change that is.
0: Right. I mean, not everything is broken with insurance. Not everything. It just needs and, to be and, optimized. And and it doesn't necessarily even need to be. And this is a, a word we hear so much less than we did a few years ago. It doesn't even need to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It needs to be modernized. Modernized. That's right. Totally. That. I right? use that one
1: time. Got a modernized experience.
0: You have to modernize the experience. You have to bring it up to 2022 or if you're really right. good, 2026. Not, well, this this is broken. Yeah. I mean, you have companies like we we're just kind of hinting at and talking about who've, you know, s- stamped out the same profit year after year after year after year after in year this century. Are they, that's not broken, right? No. How did you disrupt that? You disrupted it by putting together organizations that lose tremendous sums of money. Yeah. Right. That's, dis. yes, that's disruptive. Um, But no, just, just make it uh, great UX, like like I wanted to ask you uh, about insur- your insurance, your terms, right? Yeah, your, your marketing yeah. hook. Um, That's right. Tell us, give, give us a give us a
1: minute on 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 your insurance, your terms. I think you should pick your coverages. I think that you should have a lot more flexibility in the coverages that you get and that you sell and that you want and. There are a lot of things that we sell as insurance companies, a lot of coverages that honestly, you don't really need. I hate to admit it, but it's the truth, right? It's there if you want it and there's a price for it. Do you really need it? Mm, no. A lot of times, no. Other stuff, yes, you you have to have that. But I think that the modern consumer, what they want is optionality. They want choice. They, they, they want the ability to create more of a bespoke policy. You know, the regulators only let you take that so far. But, you know, we're also looking at, you know, a lot of surplus line products as part of our business plan. And, you know, what we want there and people want the ability to say, I want wind hail coverage on my roof, but I want to put a sublimit on it. And I really don't care about water backup because I have a newer house and I have newer pipes and, you know, try to go into a, a purely old world admitted market. And, and, and split those things out and offer one, not the other. It's hard. And so I, I just think that one of the things there's an option and a price for everything. You know, there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is there are some risks that are, you know, there's horrible risks. And the other school of thought is no such thing as a horrible risk, right? There's, there's just the wrong price. price yeah. Right. It's a price. I believe in that. And, you know, one of the things that we're developing at slide is a buy peril rating. And break it down to the minutia, the sub coverages, the small perils, the, you know, the little tiny stuff that's out there. There's a price point for all of that stuff. You decide if you want it or if you don't want it. But you as the consumer should have that choice. So that's where the, you know, your insurance, your terms came from. I wanted to create a bespoke modern experience for the consumer.
0: The uh, we. We. You've been so generous with us today and, and given us, uh, um, more time than we deserve. I guarantee you. Um, I don't think so at all. (laughs) Oh, I, oh, I guarantee you. I like
1: talking insurance with uh, with fellow Uh, insurance.
0: Yeah. We can ask our wives how much time we deserve. It's it's really not very, it's very little. (laughs) So what's your future ambition? I mean, I kind of hear a guy who wants to, you know, kind of conquer the world, which is, you know, super exciting. Um, you're in uh, just a couple States now, but there's... 50 states out there. There's a world out
1: there. Tell us where, where are you heading? Where are you going? Near term it's up the East coast. And I, I believe in that. I, I, I think that uh, a lot of Florida players and including some of the Florida insurtechs, I don't think they truly understand what they're doing when they go West. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the correlation of cat risk between Florida, Texas and Louisiana is extremely high. Mm -hmm. And That's not where you want to plant 99% of your business. If you're going to be in Florida, you might want to avoid Texas and Louisiana until you have a more balanced portfolio. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just experienced knowledge, right? And like at Heritage, I refused to underwrite Texas or Louisiana. We're just not doing it. I know they're big states, a lot of people, everybody's there. They're all wrong. Trust me. And (laughs) Sure enough, look at look at what's happened in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unimaginable losses. They bringing companies to their knees. Huge right? losses, and that's yeah. on top of the Florida issues that they have and the Florida concentration issues. And you know, just like throwing gasoline on the fire. And you know, there's there's no one there to put it out. So I I, I really don't see the viability of a business plan that has a big Florida PML and moves west. Um, for me and what I did at Heritage, I was contrarian. I went up, I crawled up the East Coast. And the reason I did that is because risk correlations a lot lower as you move north than it is versus you know, going west. Right. Uh, you get uh, colder sea surface temperatures. What that means is you lack the power and punch on the, on the cat side. Look at events like um, Sandy was it even a hurricane? I mean, and at the end of the day, it was a BI risk and it was a flood risk. There wasn't a wind risk there. Um, You can get these kind of squirrely events that rake the East coast, you know, South to North, like easy Eas a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And that hit our entire portfolio at heritage, all of it. And it produced $50 million loss, which is nothing. Had that gone West through Florida and then gone West, it'd be, you know, a billion dollar, Right, and right, right. so our future is is up the east coast. We we are licensed in New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, South Carolina and Florida. We'll look to fill in the other states and you know I've got a good track record in those states and um you know that's that's how we're going to play it in the near term. It's going to be an east coast play.
0: Well, listen, I'm in California. So would you just have I somebody I like California.
1: I like somebody Mountain,
0: Texas to California. There's really only a couple of risks that are a problem here. Hail isn't one of them. No. You'll, almost, hell, re- you'll almost replace no, no roofs unless they burn.
1: You, you've you got some issues out there with um, pinhole leaks and some of the pipes and things like that, they're, but they're, it's pockets of risk. For the most part, what everyone's afraid of is wildfire. And, yeah. you know, I, I actually like California. I launched an ENS operation there while I was at Heritage. And you know, I thought, oh, I'm just gonna focus on the wooey You know, those out there listening to this podcast don't know what that is. That's the uh wildlife urban interface. Right. So it's kind of between an urban area and just flat out you're out in the forest somewhere. It's called the wooy. And you know, there's a lot of people who live there, but it's a higher risk of wildfire sure. as a result of sure. all of the the habitat around there. Mm-hmm. And so I go out there with a business plan. I say, I'm going to do wooey, and I like my models and I'm going to do concentric underwriting and do old school stuff that works to this day to to watch the risk concentration. And what I found was half the risk came in from urban areas. It was like PC ones and twos because they just dropped everything. The admitted market out there just, they just said, we're de-risking California they just dropped everything. Mm-hmm. And so you could walk into areas that weren't even wildfire exposed and get ridiculous premiums because of market conditions, but you had to play it on ENS. And it yeah. was an v- extremely profitable book of business for us. I, I think that there's tremendous opportunities out
0: here. Unfortunately and, you have a bunch of yo-yos like myself running around. <sighs> and and so you have to deal with a crazy consumer and crazy government red tape.
1: It's the regulation side of it that right. scares me. So if I, you know, if I did it, I'd do, I'd take a page out of my own playbook and do it on ENS paper. And yeah, I wouldn't do admit it out there. I, I think that's that's extremely scary.
0: Well, when you're ready to ride my house, let me know. Okay. We don't we don't even <laughs> well, have a shake we don't have a shake roof anymore. So just keep that in mind. Mark that down. <laughs> okay. I will.
1: I will make a note of it.
0: Policy so, number one. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have had the pleasure of having uh, Bruce Lucas with us. Say what? What a joy to uh, to uh, talk to somebody who's in the seat that you are—the the junction of tech, data, and insurance. I, I'll speak for Lee and I'll say that we're both super excited for what you guys can do. Absolutely, no question. Thank
2: you.
1: Well, Thank thanks you. for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Well, you got to come back again because I will, absolutely. Um, that little contract that you signed before you came on today?
2: Yeah. yeah. It's
0: in there. <laughs> it's,
2: it's in, in there. there. I like repeat Two time. appearance. Two time. Okay. Thank Two time. you. Thanks so much, Bruce. All right. Thank you guys.
0: First insure tech carrier to make money in its first year.
2: That's a pretty good year. That's pretty good year.
0: Pretty good. Pretty clever. Loved his viewpoint on St. John's, right?
2: Yeah, I mean um, I think that was the first thing I thought whenever I saw the news. I said, "Why do you think you can do any better?" And he said, "Well, cuz I researched and I think I can, you know, they already did a lot of the work
0: because the numbers showed that, right?" Yeah. I mean, it it it's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. V- no.
2: Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really good. He's got such a great head on his shoulders. And he does bring a lot of experience pre-insurance mm-hmm. into this world, but he is an yeah. insurance guy now. He is insurance, he understands it. Um, and he is not afraid to say, why do we do that that way? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he understands all the parts and pieces of the industry mm-hmm. uh intimately. He knows to put good people around him, like our friend John DeVoe. And yep. um, he um, has uh, leveraged something that I I I loved his presentation. I loved what he had to say.
2: I agree. I liked his t-shirt as well.
0: Do you think I talked him into writing in California?
2: No, I don't think you do. You don't
0: think so? No, no I think I'm he not, was I'm being not very nice. persuasive in that regard. No, no. Well, listen, we thank Bruce for being with us so much. Uh, we thank Alicia Moss And whoever that other producer is that we have, I don't remember his name. Aldrin. What? I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. Most importantly, we thank you, our loyal listener, who no matter when our podcasts get published, you still find them. So thank you. So we'll say until next time.
2: Goodbye, everybody.